Take a minute and imagine a world in which everyone had an opportunity for life as a professional artist. A world where individuals from all walks of life could earn some or all of their income from their creative work. Now consider our current reality, where access to that opportunity seems narrow and inequitable. What policies, practices, or systems might be blocking full access to professional life as an artist? And what can be done to bridge those gaps? Welcome to the Create Equity Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Taylor, and for this latest two-episode series, we're taking a look at the challenges facing working artists and efforts locally and internationally to address them. In this first episode, I'm talking with Michael Feldman, who's a member of the Create Equity editorial team and a strategic advisor to local and international arts organizations. In episode two, we'll hear from Teresa Hubbard, a program specialist at Fractured Atlas, talking about that organization's efforts on the ground to provide innovative services to working artists. Create Equity is an online publication and think tank dedicated to investigating the most important issues in the arts and what we can do about them. Michael Feldman was part of a team that explored existing research on the state of professional working artists. The result was three articles available at createquity.com. One was on government funding for professional artists around the world. Another explored higher education and its role in the pipeline for professional artists. And a third considered the risks of choosing a professional life in the arts and whether those risks affected different socioeconomic groups in different ways. I began our conversation with Michael Feldman, asking him how the Create Equity team chose this topic in the first place. Well, as you know, one of the things we look at is a healthy arts ecosystem. That's how we organize our work. And one of the key opportunities in a healthy arts ecosystem is the ability to work as an artist, which we view as a scarce opportunity, or the ability to actually make your living as an artist, which we view as a very scarce activity. And so we were looking at who has access to those opportunities and are they distributed equitably. So why focus on the opportunity for working as an artist rather than just having artistic activity in your life? So we were really looking at what would provide the maximum uh, collective well-being benefit to society. And in our healthy arts ecosystem, we look at how artists benefit individually, which is part of the benefit uh, in well-being terms, but also how does society as a whole benefit. And so one of the questions is, if there are individuals who can't work as artists or make a living as artists because of socioeconomic disadvantage, then society as a whole benefit, uh, benefits less. So even people who are taking advantage of common uh, arts access like being an audience member or going to an art exhibition, they lose the opportunity to experience the art that's created by people working as artists from other or the full range of socioeconomic backgrounds. So that's where the socioeconomic status of the people entering the profession of artist becomes an issue not only for the individuals themselves, but for the society uh, as a whole. Great. And I noticed, I mean, there's a bunch of ways to cut that question, and you've cut it at least three ways here, uh, the most recent of which was an exploration of the state or the government's role around the world in supporting or advancing the work of professional artists. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that exploration? What were you looking for in your, in your study of um, nations around the world and how they support or engage artists? 
So when we initially looked at the overall picture of what might be the barriers uh, to lower socioeconomic status individuals being able to work as artists, so earn their living as artists, we started to come up on some potential barriers, not definite barriers, but potential barriers. And so as we looked at that, one of the questions we started to ask is, well, are there places around the world where the government is essentially addressing those barriers, removing those barriers through specific actions? And what might that look like? And so we looked at different government programs, government approaches uh, around the world to see if we're able to provide evidence that there are certain barriers, are there also solutions on the government level that can remove those barriers to access and allow uh, essentially an even playing field for people of all socioeconomic backgrounds. And did you find sort of very common categories of government support or subsidy that seem to be um, most prevalent? So we found a a range, but there were two poles. So one pole is um, essentially an employment relationship, and this is in some cases historical in the former Soviet Union. Artists worked for the state and then um, essentially had their creative output and even their creative practice dictated by the state. So that's one model. Um, Another model is um, something we found in the Scandinavian and Baltic countries where the artists got a stipend. Um, What was interesting about that stipend was that it was often mid-career or sort of laudatory in nature as opposed to early careers. So one of the questions that is still outstanding is how does the state potentially help artists in the early years of their career and that sort of initial trajectory of their career to level the playing field? Did you find some overlap between the larger social role of government in these countries and their specific support of the artists? Well, there's definitely overlap. And one of the things that's important in some cases, for example, in Germany, uh, where they have the uh, artist social Uh, fund is that they map their social support networks that are designed for people who are regularly employed over to the type of income fluctuation and uh, social benefit requirements of artists. And so that's one step where you take the, uh, I think, high risk and variable income nature of an artistic profession, which we'll discuss later, and you would have the social protection network adaptable with an open architecture that allows the artists to participate in that even uh, though their income fluctuates or they're not working for a, you know a single employer for example and so that's one very important uh, element another different model uh, again historical example in the Netherlands uh, shortly after World War II they started a program which provided funding for local authorities to buy artwork from artists that were um, of lower socioeconomic status and were um, just starting out on their career. 
And so that was a different type of intervention because it really looked at the creative practice of the artist and provided direct income support to the artist. Did you find that equity and access were the primary drivers in these government policies? Or were they intended more generally to support artists regardless of their socioeconomic status? By and large, these programs are focused towards the arts in general. And to some degree, there's a pattern of uh, rewarding accomplished artists, typically in that case late career artists, as opposed to providing uh, launch pads for uh, early career artists. The the Dutch example uh, from the 50s, 60s, and 70s of the last century is interesting because it really does focus on um, early career artists of lower income levels. Um, and actually the article that cites that says that over that time period the number of attendees of enrollees in fine arts faculties increased faster than uh, enrollees in other faculties in Dutch institutions of higher learning over that same period. So there's at least a correlation that that um, increased the uh, ability of artists uh, to access higher education. I know we'll talk about that later. Sure, and there was a theme that there there was more policy or tended to be policy as there is in the United States toward mid-career, late-career artists, people who are already established and therefore could be identified as having promise or having a track record. It leads to the, the other article which is essentially about coming into the pipeline or one of the other articles about well how do people actually step into a career as an artist in the first place what are the risks they might take? What are the opportunities they might have? I wanted to talk a little bit about your article about who can afford to be a starving artist, because there it seems like you took a, a more individual view of who gets the opportunity to take this chance, what are the qualities of those people or their environment that help them do so, and maybe you could talk us a, a little bit about um, the purpose of this article, which was called Who Can Afford to Be a Starving Artist? Yeah, no, that's an interesting transition because the, some of the social protection schemes that we just talked about relate to the question of risk profiles. So even if social protection schemes are not specifically targeted to lower-income individuals or individuals from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, one of the questions is, what's your tolerance for risk and how much of a safety net do you need in order to embark on a profession as risky uh, as, as uh, working as an artist. And so the reason we looked at the question of risk and pursuing a career in the arts is that one of the things that was very clear in the literature was that working as an artist is a high-risk, high-reward enterprise. And so there isn't a lot of evidence around low socioeconomic status individuals' risk tolerance diverging from uh, other individuals in the pursuit of arts careers. There's some evidence on uh, entrepreneurship, 
business entrepreneurship where low socioeconomic individuals uh, are less likely to become entrepreneurs in business. So we made the parallel between entrepreneurship, which is high risk, high reward, and working as, as an artist. The issue we wanted to capture is that if you're pursuing a career as an artist, you are accepting uh, higher variability in income. There's a modest uh, delta between the income you would get as an artist and the income you might get from working in other careers. But maybe the, the, the biggest challenge that you're facing is that you're accepting a higher risk. And so the question we're asking, without necessarily finding the full range of evidence we'd like to see, is does the riskiness of a career as an artist prevent low socioeconomic background individuals from pursuing careers as artists when they otherwise might. So what did the research or evidence say about this risk and this choice to become a working artist, particularly for those with a challenging socioeconomic status? In the article, you make a connection to research around entrepreneurship. Well, the, the evidence is not as robust as we'd like to see. Um, the in fact the one of the dean of the studies in the field um, Neil Alper actually said that there really isn't uh, nationally representative data around artists uh, and socioeconomic status and so we've been hampered in that but I, what we were able to find is again with the parallel with entrepreneurs we found that lower socioeconomic status individuals were less likely to become entrepreneurs where whatever the passion is the practical um, implication of pursuing that path as an entrepreneur is that you're deferring earnings over a period of time and you're doing so in pursuit of something that is high risk, high reward, may turn out to be very successful or may be uh, essentially a failure. And so the parallel that we're making is that with equal levels of you know, drive and passion, as you mentioned, would lower socioeconomic uh, background individuals say, well, I'm not willing to take that risk. I don't have the social capital. I don't have the financial capital. I don't have the uh, you know, family backup, essentially, to pursue this high-risk, high-reward career that requires me to uh, wait for several years, perhaps, to, to actually see a return on, on my time. Another piece to that where we found some evidence is that Menger described the um, artist labor markets as uh, similar to the behavior of small firms. And so again, you have people from lower socioeconomic status that may look at 
the prospect of pursuing a career as an artist almost like they were starting a small firm themselves. Certainly that's the way he described the uh, artistic labor markets going into the 21st century. So one possible path into life as a professional artist is higher education. And in one article, your team explored the importance and accessibility of that path. Can you talk a bit about what you found? All right, so we looked at a couple of questions on that. And so one question is goes back to the risk issue. So, you know, if, if that's a part of the investment you're making in order to pursue the path of a career artist, uh, what does that level of financial capital that's required to pursue a BFA or MFA do to your willingness to accept the risk of pursuing a career of an, uh, as an artist? So the, the, the two issues are connected on the level of, of risk. The other question in terms of uh, access, uh, we found that there's a certain variation among different arts disciplines about how much formal training is required in order to work as an artist in those arts disciplines. And some of that evidence is not entirely clear-cut because there are different paths and people have different perceptions of the most uh, effective path. But there are certainly uh, a variance between uh, formal training that's required, uh, informal training. Again, in some professions, it may be that you need to uh, work in a, a company, if you're a ballet dancer, and uh, or work with a um, music tutor. And that's, again, an investment in some kind of schooling that is a cost that needs to be dealt with in order to succeed as a professional artist in that artistic discipline. And what we found um, is that the it's unclear whether the ability to get a BFA or MFA is the critical barrier to becoming an artist on the one hand. On the other hand, the cost of uh, becoming, of gaining a BFA or MFA, I'm going to say that again, the cost of uh, obtaining an MFA or BFA or other formal training can be a barrier to the ability to make a living and survive as an artist. And so you have a question of the resources required in order to put yourself on the track to become a professional artist and then what that in turn means for your uh, ability to survive economically as an artist in the early stages of your career. I think the other thing we found um, is that some sort of a university degree was attractive for uh, artists of, of all socioeconomic background, probably in that context, especially for artists from low socioeconomic backgrounds, because um, as in Thornsby, 
artists who had university degrees were able to use them to gain other employment to support themselves, the famous day job, while pursuing their path as a professional artist. And so the importance of university education was perhaps less directly related to the path to becoming a professional artist, but certainly was consistent with uh, the general understanding in the economics field that those who have post-high school education have a greater earning ability than those without. And as you said, it sounds like there would be a vast difference between the um, disciplines. So I would imagine like being an orchestra performer, if not the education is required, at least a very high level of technical proficiency, a deep understanding of the conventions of the discipline, and some sort of agency about how to actually be successful in an ensemble. Um, whereas perhaps contemporary art or some other forms of emergent artwork, media art, um, has a whole different setup. Um, uh, and I'm curious if you looked across all types of disciplines or whether you focused or the data focused on um, particular disciplines that, when you were doing your studies. So we uh, found that the, the data tended to focus on the disciplines as a whole, and we, we looked at a couple of uh, articles. Manga, as I mentioned, for example, looked at some of the potential differences in different disciplines, uh, but didn't do a research around that. Uh, by discipline. Now, Thorsby did a project in Australia where he looked at um, artists pursuing uh, arts work, arts-related work, and essentially non-arts-related work in order to the support themselves. And in that study, he looked at different arts disciplines uh, from the point of view of which ones were able to essentially work in their general discipline, even when they weren't working on their art. He didn't go back, that study didn't go back and look at the training trajectory for different disciplines and what was the uh, amount of tuition that was required or other type of formal training in order to reach a professional qualification or professional practice in a given discipline. And I imagine it already sounds like um, this is one of those questions you could dig into forever because I would imagine people of different socioeconomic status have different access to public education in the arts, they have different access to attending arts events or creative events, they have different family contexts, different cultural contexts, um, and so here you picked the, the state sort of government support uh, this risk assessment approach and higher education, it feels like there's a whole series of these you could do. If you, uh, if the larger goal is to make sure people with a calling or a compulsion to be professional artists get that opportunity. Yeah, well, we actually started uh, asking the question as to whether the propensity to pursue uh, artist careers, the sort of that passion or drive that you mentioned, uh, was uh, something that diverged earlier. And surprisingly, we didn't find uh, a lot of studies 
that address that question. There were some um, assessments of particular programs dealing with indivi uh, individuals of low socioeconomic background uh, where they found that uh, if they provided intensive support through uh, sort of early college years, post-secondary time frame, they would be able to bring uh, these people along and give them the opportunity to pursue their, their drive for an artistic career, but we didn't really see evidence that, that looked at a larger sample or looked at uh, situations where there, there wasn't already an intensive in, intervention in place. And so I think that's a very important question and it would be helpful to know more about that because ultimately, as you say, that's where you're potentially getting that drive that would bring people to the point where they want to pursue that artistic career. And then you get to the questions that we tried to answer of how do you make that accessible and facilitate pursuit of that artistic career for individuals of all socioeconomic backgrounds because we believe that individuals of all socioeconomic backgrounds probably have equally valuable things to contribute to a society with a healthy arts ecosystem. Finally, I know you do a lot of consulting and advice, advising work with arts organizations uh, locally, internationally. Uh, are there insights or um, discoveries that you made along the way that, that maybe help you approach that work um, differently to, to have an eye for equity issues in the people you're helping serve? Yeah, I, th I think so. I think a lot of um, international um, governments, governments outside the U.S. are, are struggling with the question of how do they uh, broaden access to arts professions. I think there's a interesting drive um, in the arts internationally where people view the arts partly as an expression of national identity, but partly also as an opportunity to expand economic uh, opportunities for their population and for their country internationally. And so the idea that the arts have a, an intrinsic value, I think is very uh, present in the international context and linking that intrinsic value, the national identity, the value to a society of having its culture fully expressed with the more instrumental benefits uh, of promoting the country's image, promoting tourism, expanding uh, creativity inside the economy is a really powerful combination. And I think more and more governments are looking at the arts um, kind of from both sides of the brain. Well, fantastic. My guest has been Michael Feldman, who's a member of the Create Equity editorial team and a strategic advisor to local and international arts organizations. You can read these articles online at createquity.com, and there'll be more conversation in other episodes of our podcast. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Andrew. I've been talking with Michael Feldman, a member of the Create Equity editorial team and a strategic advisor to local and international arts organizations. 
You can read the articles we talked about online at createquity.com. You've been listening to the Createquity podcast in partnership with Fractured Atlas. In the other podcast in this series, I'll be talking with Teresa Hubbard about her work at Fractured Atlas, addressing practical barriers facing people working in the arts.